Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. From the corner office to the basketball court. The WNBA is going to stand to be a leader in that women's empowerment movement, not just for basketball or sport, but I think much more broadly, and that's that's what it means to me. Welcome to Boss Files. I'm your host, Poppy Harlow, and today's guest is WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert. She is the first woman to hold the title Commissioner, a move to empower women in professional sports. Her predecessors all held the title President. In just the past few weeks, it's hard to think about the future of women's basketball without, of course, thinking about Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna. Kathy told me that Kobe was a huge WNBA supporter. In fact, when she first took the job, she was shocked when he actually reached out to her and asked if they could meet. I'm from Philly. He, he went to high school in Philly. So I said, we have that in common. And um, he, uh, he came in, um, walked in the room as if we had known each other our whole lives, first time I ever met him. And he said, you know, Kathy, I spend four hours a day on girls basketball and I love it. And just went on, I want to know the strategy, I want to know how you're thinking about the WNBA. And what I didn't know at the time when I met with Kobe is how he was mentoring so many of the WNBA players and the college players. Kathy also credits Kobe with changing her thinking about the work that she could do with the league. I didn't have a vision to until I came into this job and then met with him and I said, oh, this is real. I mean, this is real advocacy. Basketball is in Kathy's DNA. She played college ball, and her father was actually drafted to the NBA. Wait for that story. It's a great one. The last time Kathy was on Boss Files, she was CEO of Deloitte. But she tells me since then, she has, quote, stepped away from the spreadsheet. She also came into the league and led the negotiations on the collective bargaining agreement. And players ended up with higher salaries and paid family leave. She told me that WNBA players are activists and they take a stand on social issues. So we get into that and a lot more. Let's jump right in with Kathy Engelbert. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Poppy. Great to see you. Nice to be with you. A few years later than last time. Yes. In a totally different job. Congrats. Thank you very much. Uh, huge job. Commissioner of the WNBA. I, I guess I'd like to start at on the day. Tell me about the day. Was it a phone call? How did you find out that you got this hugely important job and one, frankly, that you're making history in? Yeah, well, as I was wrapping up um, being the CEO of Deloitte, which is a term, and the end of the term was coming, and I was thinking, you know, what what could I do next? And um, uh, this opportunity was, um, you know, a former colleague of mine gave me a call and said, I have the perfect job for you. And I said, what is it? And he said, you know, to lead the WNBA. And I kind of laughed because I did play college basketball. Um, my father was actually drafted by the Detroit Pistons in 1957. I know. So I have five brothers. They all played basketball. We all we just grew up with a, a, a basketball court in our backyard. So I had some basketball DNA. And I said, you yeah, know, no, I, I was thinking maybe another corporate job, maybe do corporate boards. And 
um, as I got intrigued and, and someone said, just 30 minutes with Adam Silver, 30 minutes. And I went over and met Adam and got very intrigued with the um, possibility of having, you know, doing something different, doing something with a broad women's leadership platform and quite frankly, doing something I had a passion for, which was basketball. Tell me more about that 30 minutes with Adam Silver. Obviously, he's the commissioner of the NBA, NBA, a a really remarkable leader. Um, How did he get you to say yes? (laughs) So I think he had a very good strategy. I basically walked in and he said, why would you want this job? And I told him women's leadership platform, something I had a passion for, something different. And he said, well, that's interesting, Kathy. We're looking for a female business leader with a passion for the game. And it really helps someone who played the game. And I had played in college for Muffet McGraw, now a Naismith Hall of Fame coach. And I don't think he knew at the time about my dad's link to the NBA, having been drafted and having played for Dr. Jack Ramsey, who became a Naismith Hall of Fame coach for the Portland Trailblazers. Mm -hmm. So just kind of all linked on that 30 minutes. And then I met with Mark Tatum, the deputy commissioner, and some others, and just really um, was a, a good match, I would say, in what I was looking for and what they were looking yeah. for at a time where the WNBA, the players had opted out of their collective bargaining agreement. So it was an important time to find a leader that was the right fit for They could them. make a deal that would make all sides happy, which you did, and, and we'll get to the to, to the CBA in a little bit. But just back to you and this basketball family. So your dad's drafted by the Pistons. Your five brothers play basketball. You played at Lehigh. What was your introduction to basketball like? Do you remember the first time you picked up the orange ball? Uh, Probably not the first time, but I remember being very, very young, having to shoot underhanded in the backyard. And literally, we grew up in the Philadelphia area. And as soon as the snow would melt each spring, Mm. my brothers would go out and I remember them having a spray can, spray paint can, spray painting, arguing over where to put the foul line. Really? Spray painting a foul line. And I was the fifth of eight. I had an older sister and then three brothers. So I was the fourth with the three older brothers. You had eight kids in your family? Yes. I had two sisters as well. And they would spray paint this line and we would go out there and play two-on-two basketball till dark. And in fact, my dad had to put in a curfew that you can't be dribbling basketballs at 10 o'clock at night right? uh, because the neighbors, we didn't have neighbors. So uh, so those are my fondest memories. Mm. And then as I became became a player, both in, probably starting in seventh and eighth grade, because back then you didn't start when you were two, you started mm-hmm. in seventh and eighth grade mm-hmm. and then went to high school and then got recruited for lacrosse in college, walk on for basketball, but I knew I always wanted to play basketball as well. It sounds to me like you were sort of born for this job. <laughs> that, that's ex- the person who called me was a former colleague of mine said, you don't realize it, but it's your dream job. But he actually called me for five straight months about the job. Really? And finally, in the fifth month, he said, 30 minutes, 30 minutes. It took him five months minutes. to get you to spend 30 minutes with Adam Silver? <laughs> yes, yes. Because again, I was leading a big firm at the I time. Know. And I was still a couple months away from from that ending. And yeah, so, but he, he just kept saying, you don't realize it, but this right. is the perfect job It's sort of like my dad, the story goes, my dad. Dad asked my mom to marry him every day for five years. <laughs> That's endurance. And then she said yes. That's true endurance. And it all worked out. Um, so fast forward, you say yes. Adam gets you to yes. And you taking over, you also are a first. Not only were you the first when you were CEO of Deloitte in terms of a female CEO of a, of a, of a big four professional services firm, you became the first commissioner of the WNBA. All of the women that had preceded you in this role were presidents. Why? Was it important for you to be commissioner? Well, I think it was more important to Adam and the NBA than myself because I'm never into titles. Although I think in this case, 
it was the progressive thing to do, given the conversation Doesn't it feel around, like a little good to be the yeah, first no, commissioner? It definitely does. I'm cooler with my son and daughter now <laughs> than I was before as a CEO. But the, the reality is this gives me a seat at, at the table. Sure. And it also, as Adam said in the press, it's a, a signal that the WNBA is a major professional sports league. Note he didn't say women. It's a mm. major professional sports league, and major professional sports leagues have commissioners. And so that was a signal. And mm. again, I, I, you know, I told him when he, he actually called me after I accepted the job to say, we're going to make you a commissioner. We think it's important. And I, I said, I'm not in the titles, Adam, but I think it's progressive. And given the, the movement around women's, you know, empowerment, mm-hmm. I said, this will empower me. And that's what he wanted. He wanted this to be an empowered position mm-hmm. to change and transform the league. So you got the job and you got the title and then the hard part comes. <laughs> yes. When you walked in the door the first day, right, that's got to be scary. I think I, I think the higher you go up, the, the, the sort of lonelier it can become. And everyone's looking at you to get this collective bargaining agreement done and to fix the league, to make money, to make it profitable, which it hasn't been. What vision did you walk in that door with? So I walked in with a vision. I think after 33 years in business, I said, nothing can be harder than what I was just doing with the pace of change and technology. And so I walked in four days on the job. We had our WNBA All-Star Game and out in Las Vegas. And I walked into, there were 180 in media. So we, I, I figured, wow, this league punches way above its weight in the media who are very interested in hanging on mm-hmm. every word. And here I'm literally four business days on the job and mm-hmm. answering questions about basketball and the league and the mm-hmm. profitability. And we had players who had gotten hurt overseas and we, the players had opted out and, of the collective and bargaining agreement. And just to agreement. explain to people, a lot of these players in the WNBA, for, for folks listening, they don't make anywhere near what the NBA players make. They have to go or they felt they have to go overseas in the offseason to make more money. Right, to supplement their income. But if they get injured, that hurts you guys back here. Yes, exactly. So so what we tried to do in the collective—and we had a collective bargaining agreement meeting with the players out in Las Vegas, again, four days on the job. And then obviously we're in the middle of the season. We need to finish the season strong, which we did. Had a great WNBA playoffs and finals. Washington Mystics uh, won in a deciding game five over the Connecticut Sun. And then it that's when the really hard work started mm. as the season ended to say, we've got to get a collective bargaining agreement. It mm-hmm. expired on October 31st. Mm-hmm. We then extended it because we did need some time. And the biggest thing we needed time on, I needed time on, is to build trust with the players and, quite frankly, trust with the owners because we were – the league represents the owners in that bargaining, uh, the bargaining process, and then the players don't trust the league because you know the the old collective bargaining agreement they would view wasn't as player focused. So, my number one strategy coming in was quite frankly not dissimilar to a people first agenda that I ran at Deloitte was mm-hmm. player first agenda. That that so how did you get the owners to say yes? Because some of the major components of this deal are a fifty three percent pay raise for all players. I think triple salaries, cash compensation for the top players, uh, fully paid parental leave, right? Things like their own rooms when they travel instead of having to to bunk up with someone, um, two bedroom apartments at least, right? If they have a child. Uh, but with a league that's not profitable. So how do you get the owners to say yes? Well, I think a lot of the work with the owners going with what I call bold, because I think in today's environment, if we didn't go bold, we wouldn't have a league in five years. So yeah. the owners were 100 percent behind it, deserve a lot of the credit for the early strategy around what they called their go big strategy. 
And so the owners were well on their way before I walked mm. on the door, but they needed a leader. They needed a leader to take this to the players, build some trust. What I say, build, do some small things of symbolic value in the early part of the negotiation. And one of those things I did was approve a charter flight for the players during the playoffs when they had to go west to east with one day rest. And I said, I did it out of player first, player wellness. Mm. I wanted the highest level of performance on the mm -hmm. court. And I think that actually, in a weird way, it was very small, but it built trust with the players. And then the owners Because said, the guys get this all the time. Yes, exactly. So we said, you know, we can't afford it all the time, but let's do it mm -hmm. when it makes sense. And let's do it early on. Yeah. And as we go into this huh. collective bargaining negotiation to build trust. So that, that little bit of trust, it was, oh, Kathy gets it. She was a player. She wants the highest level mm -hmm. of play on the court. So it's those kind of things that all across my long career, you know, I'm a big believer in these small things to build trust because then the harder things you get done. And the owners really stepped up. I mean, you know, there were things that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise given, but I said this has to be a holistic mm -hmm. package, not mm -hmm. just of enhanced pay, which you've described, which we're very proud of, and the owners have stepped up, but fertility benefits, adoption mm -hmm. benefits, travel, upgraded travel. Um, and so, therefore, again, you're building trust with the players. They feel loved, they frankly, feel and like, valued. And they're professional elite athletes. They're amazing athletes. The, the most elite athletes at their craft in the world. And they should feel like the WNBA is behind them, supporting them. And that's that's why we did what we did. So you played for the, in college, for the legendary basketball coach, Muffet McGraw. Yes. Was, was she in your ear during this, in not, a way? Not specifically. No, I but know, but like, you know, the lesson yeah, she taught I mean, you. You know, if you if you look back, she, you know, was in the Final Four last year for NCAA women, and she had made those statements about women and equality, mm -hmm. not just in sport but in business. So, you know, certainly Muffet and I have kept in touch lately over the years, but certainly as I stepped into this role, you know, I, I knew what um, the, the obligation I had on my shoulders to come through for these elite women athletes. And there were others in my ear, like a Kobe Bryant, who was a huge advocate for women's basketball in the WNBA, and obviously David. Stern and mm -hmm. who, who launched the league and Adam mm -hmm. Silver mm -hmm. right right behind us on everything we were doing. And you just named two greats that we lost. Yes. I mean, this, I you know, know it's, within it's a, a matter of weeks, we, you know, the, your, the NBA, WNBA family lost David Stern, a remarkable commissioner, lost Kobe Bryant. Can we just spend a little bit of time talking about sure. Kobe? Because I know that he, um, I, I know that he meant a, a lot to you, Um he actually, as I understand it, came to meet with you. He did. Dale. Right when you yeah. got the job? Right when I got the job. He was in he was overseas with Adam and and Adam tells the story now that um you know, Kobe didn't want to talk about the NBA. He wanted to talk about the WNBA and wanted to meet the new commissioner. Girl dad. Girl dad. Hashtag girl dad. So he basically reached out by the time Adam landed from China when Adam had texted me, Kobe Bryant wants to come see you. And I said, I was literally six weeks on the job and I said Oh, this is a good job. Kobe yeah, Bryant right. wants to come see me. <laughs> I'm from Philly. He he went to high school in Philly. Yeah. So I said we have that in common. And um, he uh, he came in. Um, he was um, walked in the room as if we had known each other our whole lives. First time I ever met him. And he said, you know, Kathy, I spend four hours a day on girls basketball, and I love it. And just went on. I want to know the strategy. I want to know how you're thinking about the WNBA. And what I didn't know at the time when I met with Kobe is how he was mentoring so many of the WNBA players and the college players. So you saw at the memorial service a week ago Monday at Kobe's memorial, you know, Vanessa Bryant made it very clear by putting on stage the first three speakers 
Diana Taurasi, one of the best players in the WNBA, WNBA history. Uh, Gino Ariyama, coach of UConn women, mm-hmm. basketball. And then Sabrina Ionescu, um, who's University of Oregon, just got Pac-12 player of the year. So um, you saw the impact on women's basketball. So we've lost a huge advocate. Obviously, our hearts still go out to the families of all. We'll be honoring the three girls on that helicopter at our upcoming draft in April Peyton, Alyssa, and Gigi, mm-hmm. um, you know, as uh, our way of making sure that they're remembered and Kobe's legacy is carried on. And talking about his legacy, I mean, so much of it was his daughter Gianna. Yes. 13 years old. And people who watched her play said she, her skill resembled you know, what her father had, the, 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 like the, the fate, I don't know, basketball terminology, <laughs> sorry, but something about the, the fade. The step back fade, the step jumper. Back fade yes. was like her dad. Um, and, and you have said that she was the future of our game. Yes. And I think Vanessa Bryant also framed it well in her remarks at the memorial about, you know, she was the future of our game. And she would have gone on, you know, clearly she was 13, so you never know. But she clearly had the talent and more importantly, the passion for the game. When you see a girl that age with a passion for the game, and I think those girls on that Mamba Academy team, not just because Kobe was an NBA player and a Laker, Mm -hmm. but because of his passion for teaching the fundamentals. And that's what, again, I didn't have a vision to until I came into this job and then met with him. And I said, oh, this is real. I mean, this is real advocacy. And the day after our collective bargaining agreement, Mm -hmm. he reached out to us and said, you know, we're proud of you and, you know, a lot more to go or something like that. You know, never satisfied. If anybody knew Kobe, he was never satisfied. But, but, you know, proud of you and and a lot more to go and a lot more to come. And I I think he was proud of us Mm -hmm. and just obviously devastated by his passing. After a quick break, Kathy opens up about creating a, quote, culture of courage. When, when you became commissioner, you said the, N, the WNBA, or the W, as you call it, stands for the power of women. What does the power of women mean to you? Yeah, I think what it means is um, I have come in, come from a very male-dominated world at the top of an organization and and now coming into, you know, a male-dominated world called sports. But sports is very similar to business. It's big business, big business about relationships. And um, sports is about relationships. So um, the power of women is something I know that would resonate with in this women's empowerment movement. I've been saying kind of we had this moment coming off the U.S. Soccer yes. World Cup win last summer. We have this momentum around the WNBA and the quality of the play. And then, you know, we have this women's empowerment movement. So that's the WNBA is going to stand to be mm-hmm. a leader in that women's empowerment movement, not just for basketball or sport, but I think much more broadly. And that's that's what it means to me. We rebranded the W last year, even before I came in. Mm-hmm. And now we're off on a transformation around a very player-first agenda. I obviously was brought in to look at the economics and the, you know, financial model for the league to make it long-term and sustainable. Mm-hmm. And then fan engagement. So the three pillars around player first, owner success, and, and fan engagement are really important to me. And they all underlie this, you know, these elite Diverse yeah. women athletes. Talk to me about why I, I was surprised in researching for for this interview that the that the WNBA is not profitable. Can you talk to me about why that is? I mean, with such remarkable athletes, such skill, what 
has gone wrong over the last few decades that it hasn't achieved profitability? Yeah, I think the narrative around women team sports has not been told in the correct way. Our assets are valued in a different way. They may be valued using the same algorithm and spreadsheets a male asset is, so a patch, a placement on the court, Mm -hmm. media rights. So Mm -hmm. if you look even at the NBA, we'll be tipping off our 24th year. The NBA 40 years into their league didn't have household names, were on tape delay. That's even the finals on yeah, tape delay. Yeah, the finals were on tape delay. And then, you know, they had a big rivalry come out of college, Magic Johnson, mm-hmm. Larry Bird, that mm-hmm. changed the game. And then mm-hmm. Michael Jordan came along and the marketing took off from there and Nike helped that and others. So, um, you know, one of the important things to me now is mm-hmm. to study history to get the valuation of the women's team sports Uh, valuations up, uh, whether it's of a franchise, of a patch, of a media right, because a lot of the money's in the media rights and the corporate sponsorship. You had said on that note, 5% of media coverage of women's sports, that's it, and only 5% of corporate sponsorships go to women in sports? Right. And so if you you actually, so I I got the numerator and denominator of both those those numbers, and it's less than 4% on the media side covers women's sports and less than 1% of all global corporate sponsorship dollars go to women's sports. And it's Mm. actually even less when you get to women team sports because individuals like Serena and some of the LPGA golfers, they get their own endorsements as individual sports. So this is really important and why we launched as part of the collective bargaining a new way of thinking about valuing women team sports with the WNBA Changemaker platform. Mm -hmm. We've signed up three companies in discussions with others. Really important as you think about it because 80% of all household consumer purchasing decisions are made or influenced by women. I know. 80% and 84... 84- I feel like I'm like... They, they say that women buy a lot of their husband's underwear. <laughs> I, I don't, but you know. Yeah, but you they're, buy they're, a lot of other things, yes, I'm sure. You no, know, you're right. You're right. But 84% of people surveys said they like to watch women's sports. So why don't we have the valuations? Why don't so we why, have the why? profitability? I mean, Adam Silver has been pretty candid talking about this over the last year or so, saying, you know, we haven't figured out a winning formula, to be quite honest. And uh, and I think the WNBA has lost about $10 million a year, at least in the 23-year existence. So the, he thinks you have the winning formula, or he wouldn't have Yeah, so exactly why I, why I was brought in is to—and it is a transformation, as I said, about the— the narrative around why it's important for companies to step up and media to step up and value the women's game as much mm-hmm. as they value the men. And so moving those percentages up, but more importantly, having the narrative right that that the diversity inclusion platform we can offer to corporations to activate against mm-hmm. their talent, something I did when I was at Deloitte when we did sports sponsorships, enormous opportunity to do that here. But no one ever thinks of activating sports. They look at Viewership and attendance, yeah. those are the two metrics. Yep. That is why we're going to change the way people look at well, the WNBA. You have a unique um, opportunity, I suppose, to do that because you have previously been on the other side of the table. As CEO of Deloitte, which had a ton of money to spend on advertising and marketing and branding, people were coming to you with their pitch. Exactly. So you know what pitches are good and been, bad. been on the other side. And I know how a company like that, which is more of a B2B company, yeah. but I also served clients in the consumer products and the financial institutions and how they're looking for a platform to drive the trust in them so they can build their customer base, whether it's in a consumer products business or a financial institution. Because if you look at data and digital and mm-hmm. every way you're trying to connect – 
why wouldn't a, a sponsorship of an elite women's professional league, that's the only women's professional league here in the U.S., been around over 20 years, not be part of that narrative for them? And you have said, bluntly, we have a marketing problem. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that part of your strategy change is going to be putting more money behind your superstars. Yes. I, I am a huge believer in studying all of the leagues, including the NBA, that when you have household names, when you build rivalries, people want to watch. People want to follow. And so – and then it drives franchise value up and then you get the media rights mm-hmm. valued, right? So it's not just about corporate sponsorships. It's about media and it's about driving viewership. So that does – that is an important component. Mm-hmm. But how do you do that? So we mm-hmm. just came off – so in the collective bargaining agreement, we loosened up our free agency rules and we just came up off probably the most active free agency period in the history of the WNBA, which I was recently quoted saying exceeded my expectations because it did. Now people are talking about the WNBA. They're talking about super teams, they're talking about the Western Division, which What's has a, a couple. super team? Super team is where you have three or four great players okay. who went to Forgive one team. Forgive my ignorance. Yeah, whether it was our Las Vegas Aces team or our LA Sparks or the Phoenix uh, Mercury or uh, the Minnesota Lynx or and Go you Minnesota. Know, New York has the number one pick in our draft this year, and that's going to be yeah. interesting and draw yeah. attention. And we've got some amazing players that will be rookies in the league this year coming in that are marketing savvy, and that's what we need. We need more marketing of a couple of these superstars. That's why we doubled down, you know, with the tripling of the pay for the top superstars because I think that's going to lift. I mean, every why player. shouldn't they be on the side of my? I say McDonald's because you're on the board of McDonald's now, like. You know, on the on the I remember growing up and going to McDonald's in Minnesota and getting these like way, way too large sodas. <laughs> I called it pop there. Right. But there would be like I don't know who Michael Jordan or whoever it was right. on the side of the cup. And we're making progress on that. I think companies are starting to be very interested in our athletes and their stories. Mm-hmm. They have amazing stories, their social consciousness. I mean, we have one of our Minnesota players taking her second year off, Maya Moore, from the WNBA to yeah. work on, you know, criminal justice yep. reform. And it's pr- prison reform. It's pretty interesting what she's doing and what she stands for. That's, and that's amazing our players. to take time off the league to do that. I don't, I don't know if we've seen many, any male professional athletes voluntarily taking time off to to fight for one issue. Yeah, I know we've had maybe military people take time off for to sure. serve in the military yep. post 9-11. Yep. Yep. But I think that just shows you the social consciousness and community-mindedness hmm. of our players. And integrating that into these platforms, as we've talked to some potential sponsors, they're like, oh, we want to integrate that into our you know, goals around sustainability or our goals around social justice. So it's, it's again, it's a different narrative we're telling. Can I ask how, how do you think about those things in terms of taking a stand for social issues? Because it can be a precarious, as we've seen play out in the NFL, for example, uh, precarious position for a commissioner or as CEO, you dealt with this in your final years Absolutely. at Deloitte, to say, to sign an amicus brief to the Supreme Court or to stand up and say, hey, we stand for this. But players in the league, in your league, have been outspoken on, say, abortion rights, for example, criminal justice reform, as you just mentioned, the Me Too movement. Um, your predecessor, Lisa Borders, took a stand when it came to Planned Parenthood. Where, what are we going to see from you? Yeah, I think this is important to support. Again, if you're going to run a very player-first agenda, which is the first pillar in my strategy, we're going to need to support the players in the in their social justice. But they don't all have fights. the same beliefs. That's they don't. The, that's and the needle you have to thread. Yeah, you have to thread the needle. But you know, we are do live in a divisive society, and I think 
Uh, we can coalesce around common goals. Um, you know, Natasha Cloud in, in uh, Washington was our winner this year of our uh, community initiative uh, award, and you know she was working on gun control. Um, so you know we're not uh, not shying away from edgy issues. I realize not everybody's on the same page, but I think when you look at 144 players, very diverse league, a lot of women of color. I think we've really coalesced around the issues that matter to them. You know, some of them opioid awareness. They've been touched by that in their lives. So good, good for them. Yeah. So we we need them. to look at all of these issues and and support our players in their voice because that matters in the communities in which they live and play. Do you feel a little bit more free now to I do, do that? I do. I definitely do. You know, when you're leading a great firm like I was of 100,000 people, you know, 75 percent millennial, that was great. There was a lot of employee activism uh, evolving. You know, this is a different way. I mean, the 144 players, they are activists because that's the platform they've been given. They've been given that via social media, millions of followers. And and so I do feel like we can take risks. We're a smaller league, but we can have a big impact. And these women are um, amazing role models, too, for not just young girls, but young boys, too. And, you know, I had a friend of mine who said, you know, the first game of basketball, pro basketball game I want my son to see is actually a WNBA game, not an NBA oh, game. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and then— um, And your son, uh, college now? Yes, he's a freshman in college. He's yes. a big WNBA Yeah, big WNBA fan. fan. He thinks I'm cooler now that I'm the commissioner <laughs> because I think ultimately his friends think I'm cooler. So, you know, the pressure from kids. I mean, kids, it's like, so. what does your mom do? Well, let me tell you <laughs> what my mom does. Exactly, yeah. So, take, big sports fan overall. Take me back to being a kid. We, we heard, you know, at the beginning you were telling me about the, the driveway and basketball and your— Seven brothers and sisters. <laughs> what were your What were your parents like? So my father worked three jobs. We were a middle class family in a little town in southern New Jersey, right across the bridge from Philly. He worked three jobs. My mom worked this is after being drafted. Yeah. So what happened was, and I love telling this story. Nineteen fifty seven, drafted by the what was called the Fort Wayne Pistons. Mm. The next year, it was the Detroit Pistons. And first year draft, we still have the letter, $900 he would make for the year. Oh, my gosh. 1957. And he got a job with RCA for $2,000. He took the job at RCA. The he NBA opted was, out of the league. He opted out. Many people opted out of the league. If you got a, a full-time job, and, and it was almost a semi-pro league at the time. People had full-time jobs as well as uh, in the mm-hmm, offseason mm-hmm. as well. So, um, so yeah, so he worked for RCA for 30 years. Unfortunately, he passed away in the late 80s. But— um, he really, the work ethic, I mean, I, I can't. And my mother, my mother just retired after 63 years at the same employer. She, while raising eight kids, worked for a pediatri- large pediatric practice. Um, wow. As I'm the never office going manager. to complain ever <laughs> about work-life yeah, balance Yeah, and now again. she's bored, by the way. So, uh, But six, she's here to see you doing years. this. Yeah, she is. She's so proud, and obviously, given my dad's ba- basketball background. Yeah. You know, the day I, I did announce last Easter because I had accepted the offer. It wasn't public yet. I hosted Easter Sunday at my home, and I announced it in front of all the family, and they were they had no idea, and they were pretty wild about being in basketball and being a commissioner. So it was fun. What did she say? Oh, she started crying, of oh. course, and looking up to heaven to my dad. And oh. Yeah, no, and, and we have— um, my dad's thousand-point basketball signed by all his player and Jack, all his players and Jack Ramsey still proudly displayed. I inherited that when my mom moved out of the big family house. That's but a, what a story! Yeah, no, but you know, my my they they were hard workers. Put all eight of us through college. Mm-hmm. Um, five went to Villanova. wasn't cheap. Mm-hmm. I went to Lehigh. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it was um, you know they've really worked hard to make sure that because my mom didn't go to college. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad did, but my dad got there via basketball to St. Joe's because right. his both their um, parents good, were immigrants. Good, good school, good basketball school. Yeah, yeah, good basketball school. Yep. More from my conversation with WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert after the break. What has Title IX meant to you in your life? Yeah, I've been reflecting coming into this job. Um, Title IX will be 50 years in 2022, 21, 22. And um, huge, I, I was a huge beneficiary of Title IX because I remember in the 70s, I initially, we had no soccer for girls. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Our I, U.S. women's team, national team for soccer, amazing things. There was no girl soccer when I grew up in the mm-hmm. 70s, and Title IX allowed mm-hmm. that. Um, now, I never did play soccer because, uh, you know, I was playing tennis, basketball, and lacrosse. Those were my three sports, but— um, Oh, just three. <laughs> just three. And then two in college. <laughs> right. So, um, What was it? College, but, basketball, and— And lacrosse. Oh. So I was actually recruited for lacrosse, but a walk-on for basketball. Which were you better at? Um, I, I don't know. I, you know, lacrosse, I didn't start till ninth grade because it didn't start till ninth grade. Right. That's the other thing. None of these sports started no. in kindergarten like they do today. Now, Poppy, your kids will be playing from kindergarten on. And as a mom now of two kids that were athletes, I loved it. Um, but uh, it's it's changed a lot. But Title IX, huge opportunity, as you see. And then coming off the 96 Olympics, David Stern's vision for the WNBA, mm-hmm. the women, U.S. women's national team won that gold medal. And now fast forward to 2020, and mm-hmm. the women are going for their seventh consecutive gold medal in the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. So pretty important. Had he not established the WNBA, yeah. I'm not sure this dynasty that's lived on to today would, would be can, what it is. Can you just—I know we talked about Kobe and his legacy, but just to David Stern, I, I was lucky enough to know him. Uh, he would, We graduated from the same college, and so I got to know him that way and, and interviewed him a bit over the years. But um, what do you—I mean, he just— he transformed this league. Yeah, it was it was clearly to me, and I only got to meet, meet David once the week before oh. um, his unfortunate incident. But I can just describe it as vision. Mm. I mean, he must have had this vision that this could work, unlike I'm sure there were a lot of pundits out there that said it couldn't. And he really had courage. So courage and vision is what it took mm-hmm. and investment and obviously endurance now. And now I think the quality of the game, there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with the game. It's the best it's ever been. Uh, and again, I think a lot of these women now, one of the things in collective bargaining I was wanted to carry forward to yeah. from my old life was, you know, off-season employment and getting these women to do things post-basketball, right. whether it's coaching or front office or back office yep. within organizations or you know, internships at companies because these skills, I know these are going to be the leaders of the future. And I think David is the first one that had that vision. I'm pretty impressed with everything he launched and then I get to carry forward. You you, you bring up courage to describe David Cern. And you've talked about, when you got this job, you talked about a culture of courage. Yes. What is the most courageous thing you have done? Well, there's no doubt that making these the commitments, aggressive commitments that we made yeah. in the collective bargaining agreement, we're betting on. But even women. in your life, well, yeah, making a career change from uh, <laughs> business to sports, uh, you know. But I, I think courage—the courageous things I've done in my life are I've, I've 
stepped away from the spreadsheet, from the quantitative analysis that I am now convinced do not yield good answers for women. Step away from the spreadsheet. Yes, they do not good yield good I don't good even know how to use Excel effectively for, anyways. <laughs> they don't yield great answers for women because there's so many qualitative things, Poppy, that know. go into an analysis that um, in today's algorithm-driven world, and I do worry about AI and you know the, the bias built in by well, It's coders. largely built by men. Yeah, and I mean, even just something as simple as the way you find sports on yeah. on TV now, you you go to a menu and like women's sports aren't even in the top part of the menu, and then you click on more sports and you have drag racing and UFC fighting. So you're obviously and changing, and then it's fighting more and more. That. Oh yes, because those are coded by people who don't think women's sports should be on the top menu. But I don't. If with the AI issue, it's not even necessarily intentional. No, it, I, I don't this, believe it's, it's a bias built into the system because we all, you know, you kind of think like you are. Yes. And if you're if you're all and again, of, if you're looking at met, traditional metrics that right. are quantitative in nature, and again, in, in, in my new world, based on viewership and mm-hmm. attendance, you're mm-hmm. you're not going to have investment. You're not going to have. Um, media deals that are mm-hmm. worthy of the value of the product you put on the court and the players right. you put on That's the court. Right. All right. So you you mentioned a minute ago women, uh, WNBA players doing things in the offseason to, to, to expand themselves, to make money, and not just going overseas and playing. So obviously I think about women coaching in the NBA. I remember a few years ago um, at NBA All-Star Weekend in Toronto, I got to interview Becky Hammond. And oh, it was the fir- you know, she was the first female coach in the NBA, uh, and she certainly made history, and there have been more subsequently. What, 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 do you, what do you think about that? And also, what about women playing in the NBA? Should that ever be possible? Yeah, I, I think on the coaching side, I mean, obviously, not only Becky Hammond, because she paved the way now, and we will have a, a women head coach heading the NBA someday, and Becky certainly is the first in line for that, but we have Carol Lawson up in mm-hmm. Boston. Uh, we've got Swing Cash now with New Orleans. We've got Christy Tolliver, who's a current um, WNBA player coaching um, at the Washington Wizards. So I think my goal is if all these leagues are looking for more diversity in coaching, why wouldn't you come to the WNBA? So that's why we opened that up in this collective bargaining Mm -hmm. agreement to allow our women to take these positions. And then some, Sue Bird works, you know, in basketball operations in the offseason for Denver, for instance. So not everybody wants to be a coach. Maybe they want to be a referee. Maybe Mm -hmm. they want to be in the back or front office. Um, Maybe they want to work for a Microsoft or an Apple um, or a Deloitte. So really important, I think, that we, you know, give them opportunities because they're not going to play in the WNBA forever. Um, and, and I think as it comes to WNBA players in the NBA, obviously the NBA is a different game. They play above the rim. Um, and while I think our players can compete from a outside shooting, you know, the physicality of the NBA game is very different than our game. And I don't think any—I think our players, you know, uh, would love to do exhibition-type things. But I, I think they understand yeah. that they're not going to be playing the NBA. Although I appreciate that there's a narrative out there. There that, is. That the quality of play—and I totally agree with this. And I've brought my brothers to games who had never watched a WNBA game, and they are absolutely— stunned at the positively about the quality of our game and oh. the pure form of the game and the you know and and the and the quickness of the game the mm-hmm. pace of our game is really quick and last year during our all-star game we piloted a 20 second shot clock rather than 24 yeah the pace of the game was mind numbing even, even faster even faster it's great in terms of success for you when all is said and done i don't, I don't know how long you're going to lead this league you're young you could lead it for a very long time what is success at the end of the day? 
Success to me is that we made an impact on player pay. We drove owner success from an economic perspective. And really, the success is about driving the value of these franchises up, driving capital and sponsorship dollars in so that we can invest in the league, market household names, drive rivalries, get better media contracts, be on more platforms. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, this is a valuation game around the value of a franchise so that we can expand. And also, if we want an owner that wants out, that, that, you know, you looked at the most recent report for NBA teams and the average value of an NBA franchise is over $2 billion. I remember that when they were selling the Clippers. Yes. And Ballmer came in. Yes. It was a billion, right? That he, I don't remember. But it was yeah, Well, Joe Sy just yeah, yeah, bought yeah. The, the, minority, uh, the majority stake uh, of the Nets plus the Barclays Center. So I think there's the platform for sports to drive value for mm-hmm. investors. Mm-hmm. And that's what I hope for the WNBA is to drive the value of our franchises up so that our owners can drive success and that yeah. then these women can be role models for mm-hmm. a long time mm-hmm. forward. What about failure? Have you failed? Have you been fired ever? (laughs) I have not. But um, I I think, you know, failure is when you're not courageous in asking for what Mm. um, you need to get done. Um, And failure is about going along with groupthink. And and I tell a lot of women and men, but women particularly, failure is about not having confidence and, and courage to do things that you may be viewed in the short term as not popular, Mm -hmm. but long term you, you actually are doing the right thing to set up generations to come. And so did, did you do that? Have, I certainly have gone along with group things. Absolutely. I've certainly Earl, not taken risks I should. Earlier in my career, absolutely. And that's why I love having a second career like this mm-hmm. because I've kind of had my career 33 years culminating in being the CEO. And now I can take more risks and I can cash in chips for things that I've done for others and and be very empowered. And that's the great thing about Adam Silver's totally empowered me mm-hmm. to do that in a different way than I think leaders have been done in the past. Let's end on being a boss because this is boss vibes. <laughs> what is the most difficult decision you've made as a boss, not just this job, but your whole career? Um, probably definitely uh, at uh, – I'll do one at Deloitte, one at the W so far – at Deloitte, probably putting in the family leave program because um, a spreadsheet yielded that we shouldn't do it for a hundred thousand people and the cost and the you know that we shouldn't that we shouldn't do it, it was going to be too costly. How much? Um, well, the the number was um, triple digit figures per year, and I said I want to see the spreadsheet. That's the good part about being yeah. a finance CPA type person, and and we were made assumptions in there about the cost, about replacement hires. But these things we didn't put in there were all the benefits, the long-term loyalty, the productivity, um, you know, the way people, the less training costs because less people would leave. The turnover became at a historic low. Health. Um, Health and wellness, investing in your people as your R&D, as I started saying after we put that in. So I would say, you know, that was um, one thing that was really hard to do because, you know, I'm a studier of history and Abraham Lincoln and his ca- his entire cabinet told him not to do what he did. Yeah, um, team of rivals. Team of rivals. And um, and he did it anyway. Um, and so this was something where everyone around me was saying, we can't do it for X, Y, or Z, but we didn't have the benefits in there. And so I overturned decisions of our operating committee and others and said, we're going to put this in because it's the right thing to do for our people. And then at the WNBA, quite frankly, it's it's – 
you know, the the commitments we made in the collective bargaining agreement. I mean, these are pretty bold and courageous commitments that the owners um, are totally behind, and they, a lot of the burden falls on them, but some of it falls on the league. So, so really being courageous around, um, you know, changing the narrative. Um, and already we're being sought out by other sports leagues. How did you do it? How are you going to do it? How mm-hmm. do you get the funding? And um, how, how do you lift us too? Because I am convinced we're going to lift all women's sports. Thank you for leading the way. Thank you, Poppy. It's good to have you. Good luck. Thank you very we'll much. Come back. Let us know how it's going. <laughs> yes, we'll let you know how it is a multidimensional transformation, but we'll let you know how it's going. And uh, give me 18 months. Okay. Come <laughs> back in 18 months. It is March 2020. Yes. All right. We'll All have right. you back then. Thanks, Thank Kat. you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a fan of the show, we'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. So leave us a review and then follow me on social media at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.